start with the product experience where the user snaps their fingers and the value is magically delivered. That's Tom Levesque, a co-founder at Ray AI. Tom is a software developer turned product manager. After graduating and working with a local startup in Waterloo, Tom decided to move to the Valley where he ended up joining Wildfire before it was acquired by Google. After that acquisition to Google, Tom took on several other roles with a few other startups before ending up back in Canada working on Ray.ai. What Tom is talking about is how he thinks about building products that deliver immediate value to users, something he's had lots of experience doing, switching back between a software developer and product manager role. This is Hack to Start a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Koblen. Today we're speaking with Tom Levesque, the co-founder at Ray.ai, an AI-based platform that puts networking on autopilot. Before he even graduated as a software developer from the University of Waterloo, Tom had found an interest in product management. He then joined a series of startups in Canada, Silicon Valley, and the UK, including Wildfire, which was acquired by Google, Viglink, where he helped raise a 20 million Series B round, and much more. Today, he's the co-founder and developer of Ray.ai, an AI-based email platform that's redefining our conception of a social network. Tom joins us to share his story, how he got into tech and startups, how he approaches building products, what he's currently working on with Ray.ai, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Franco and I are extremely excited to have you on to learn more about your career in startups, product management, and development. But before we get into that and what you're currently working on today, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, where are you from, and what did you study? So I grew up in Windsor, and there's there's not a whole lot uh, going on in Windsor. So I uh, I got out of there uh, pretty quickly and studied at the University of Waterloo uh, computer engineering. So I was I was in Waterloo quite some time actually, for, you know, five years for uh, the undergrad, and then another four years after that at a uh, startup in Waterloo. That's awesome. So where did your passion for tech and entrepreneurship come from? It's interesting. I've uh, well, I mean, I've been doing it since high school. I guess I, I I used to build PCs in high school, so in sort of made-to-order sorts of things where I would get all the parts, assemble it, and charge markup on top of that, and do web development things like that. So I was doing a lot of tech stuff uh, before even university. But it was in university that so in computer engineering, and you know how uh, at Waterloo it's work study work study. So you know you'll have four months of school and then four months of an internship, and and that just sort of repeats. And my first few internships. I was uh, I was a software engineer because that's what you know that's what I thought I wanted to do. And going into my uh, my third uh, work term, my my lab partner and, and close friend at the university told me that he interviewed at some company where they were hiring something called a product manager. And and he said, yeah, it just sounded like this awful thing where they wanted me to talk to customers and come up with requirements and figure out what the customer experience was going to be. And he made it sound terrible, basically. And so I sort of agreed with him. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds awful. But in the back of my mind, it actually <laughs> it actually sounded pretty interesting. So I ended up applying for and getting that job as uh, as a product manager uh, for a four month internship. And, and sort of that's how I I transitioned from being kind of an engineer to more of a, more of a product manager. It was actually before I even graduated from. Uh, from university. 
that's amazing how that transition just came about. So post university days, like how did you really start your career? How did you, how did you transition from internships to university and into the startup world? Yeah, it was um, it was a little bit of a, a bumpy transition in the sense that I think at the time, you know, that was more than 10 years ago, around around 10 years ago, I wasn't able to sort of fully articulate that I wanted to be involved to myself, that I wanted to be involved in the startup world. And it wasn't quite as pronounced of a thing as it is today. You know, there's this sort of very clear startup culture today. And I think 10 years ago, obviously it was around, but it was maybe emerging a little more than it is today or still busy emerging. So I actually went to work for uh, Bell Canada in Toronto for a year because I liked the team. I had worked for them on a co-op term. And, and so I, uh, I thought I would give it a whirl. And after a year of that, I I sort of realized that I don't like, I didn't like that big company thing. I wanted to, you know, build and launch interesting new products. And so that's when I uh, went back to Waterloo and I found this startup that I ended up working for for four years. And that's that. And I've sort of been doing the startup thing ever since. But that, that was the initial, the initial leap. So just going a little bit deeper on that first experience, how did that lead you to what you ended up doing in Silicon Valley? So that, that four years, I, I kind of got a really strong background in all things data, you know, in machine learning, knowledge modeling personalization, information retrieval, all sorts of things. And when I sort of realized that that startup was not, although I found it very technically interesting, I realized it was not going to be this kind of moonshot project. When I looked around the sort of Toronto Waterloo area, saw that there weren't that many startups that I thought were going to end up being moonshot sorts of things. And that's what I wanted to be involved with. So I started looking out, out west uh, in the valley and decided that's sort of where everything was. And I found a startup called Wildfire that was sort of a social media promotions company that needed to become a social media data company. So the four years I spent at the startup meant that I knew how to lead a sort of a data products and data product team. So they brought me out there to Wildfire in uh, Redwood City, California to lead their kind of data and analytics product team and turn them into more of a data company from a promotions company. And that kind of started me on this uh, Silicon Valley thing that ended up lasting a few years. So that so that was, so I, I like to say when I, when I went to the Valley, everything that's sort of supposed to happen to you when you go to the Valley did happen happened to me. So I got, uh, so this company got acquired by Google. So I at Google, I went to San Francisco, joined another startup and raised a $20 million uh, Series B. So kind of did all the like standard Valley things in a, in a span of about three years. Wow, that's incredible. And, and there's a lot going on in there. So maybe just taking a step back before we dive into some of the other stuff, I guess, what was the biggest takeaway or the biggest lesson that you learned from your experience at Wildfire in terms of uh, specifically turning it from a promotions company, as you mentioned, which is what they really started off as, into that more data-driven product and analytics company that Google ended up acquiring? Yeah, well, so we didn't get fully through that, I think was, was one of the interesting things. So, you know, we got to pick a number, maybe say halfway through that transformation. What happened was that this was at a time when a lot of really large companies were becoming interested in social media. So you had you know, Oracle, Salesforce, Google, uh, Adobe, and, and some others sort of at the time, this was around 2012, all decided that social media, and particularly in the context of sort of data and marketing and advertising, uh, was going to be a really important part of their strategy. And so they all went looking for sort of acquisitions to help get ahead in that market. So Wildfire being one of the lead players in that space at the time was a target, as was one of our major competitors, Buddy Media, and there were a few others. So we weren't even really through this transformation when everybody started to sort of get snapped up. And there were bidding wars, actually. So Buddy Media, for example, sold for $800 million. Uh, Wildfire sold for $450 million. So there were all these bidding wars. I think there were many learnings for me from, from this. One was that, you know, if you're looking to get your company acquired, a lot of it is, is sort of out of your control, right? Like I wasn't directly involved in the sale, but it was very 
circumstantial. You know, it, it was just kind of that all these big companies decided that they needed to get into this space. And that's what, what created all of this interest. The other thing was that, in my view, the, the rationale for it was was fairly superficial. So Google, for example, ended up buying us, Salesforce bought Buddy Media. But Google's rationale was sort of extremely high level, I guess is a way of putting it. So, so their rationale was, we're Google, we have ads. And Google's customers are saying, look, I can buy ads. You can actually, through DoubleClick on Google, buy ads on Bing. So like DoubleClick will let you buy ads anywhere on the internet, including Google, but also their their competitors. So their buyers were basically saying, look, we can get display ads from you. We can get search ads from you. Why can't we get social ads from you? And Wildfire was their answer to that. Uh, the hilarious part of it is Wildfire didn't even sell social ads. <laughs> so it, it was this sort of very high level reasoning that sort of didn't really make sense when you started to try to fit the puzzle pieces together. So I found that interesting as well. And, you know, Google can afford to make those kind of mistakes, really, and just throw $450 million at something that maybe didn't quite make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds very Silicon Valley, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So what was that, I guess, acquisition process like for you, especially like landing halfway through the, the, the conversion process at Google? I'm assuming you continue to work on Wildfire there? So, you know, Google's mandate to us was business as usual. So they, you know, we were on this crazy growth curve. They didn't want to interrupt that. And they had learned from previous acquisitions that the wrong thing to do is acquire the startup and then and then sort of kill it, essentially. Not, maybe not kill it, but, but slow it down so much as to have the effect of killing it. So they actually gave us our own building on the Google campus and said, this is just your building. So there were 400 of us. So it was business as usual for a time. The sort of the Googliness started to creep in. So, you know, more and more Googlers showed up and things slowed down more. More and more, not 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 because they were slowing us down, but just because you know there were so many more things to consider. So, like a hilarious one was, uh, you know, that most of our marketing was on Facebook, uh, but of course Google wanted most of the marketing to be on Google Plus, and so there was uh, there were all sorts of interesting things going on. What we were doing with data was was with Facebook data primarily, and of course that's that's a huge issue when you're when you're thinking in the context of Google data. So you know, there are all these different different things to uh, to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. Still sounds pretty interesting. So after about a year, I guess you, you moved on from, from that and joined another startup that ended up raising $20 million, as you mentioned. So can you take us through that? What was that other company and how did you end up joining the team there? So I think about a year into the acquisition, or a year after being acquired, rather, it sort of became clear that for all these reasons I just talked about, Wildfire probably wasn't going to find a long-term place inside of Google, that it was it was going to be shut down. And it ultimately was shut down about a year later, actually. So I started thinking about, do I want to stay at Google? Do I want to do something else? And by the way, you know, I'm not sure if, um, if either of you have, have lived uh, you know, in the Valley or, or elsewhere, but it's it's super uh, annoying to switch companies when you're on a visa. Because it's, you know, it's I love being back in Canada because you don't have to ask permission to do this kind of thing. <laughs> Whereas when you're in the U.S., you know, it's a sort of immigration nightmare, even just to change jobs. You're sort of always risking your immigration status when you do that. So, so anyway, I, I, um, I looked around within Google. I had a job offer at Google Analytics, but I, I just wanted to go back to startup land. So I found a company in San Francisco called Big Link. They were looking for someone to lead their product team. So I, I went over there and, and did exactly that. And, and yeah, the first thing that we noticed is uh, that we were running out of money. <laughs> so um, so I, I focused on product for a bit and then uh, ultimately ended up putting the majority of my time into this series B round which was uh, which is a pretty pretty grueling process if you uh, if you haven't done it uh, before that's awesome so what are the insights from that experience like what was that process like 
let's see the insight. So entrepreneurship is hard. Raising money in the Valley is hard as it is anywhere. I think there's definitely some sense that raising money in the Valley is easy with respect to Canada. Maybe it is easy, a little bit easier than Canada, but it's definitely extremely difficult. You know, we talked to maybe 20 or 30 uh, different VCs. Vast majority said no. And this was with, you know, a, a fairly established business that was making a good amount of revenue and, you know, had a real team, real product, real customers growing, all those sorts of things. So I think one big learning is the VC that ultimately ended up investing, it was sort of clear from the beginning that they were the most interested and that they had decided to invest in this space almost regardless of what we told them. So it is sort of back to that, that wildfire learning as well of you're, you're less in control than you think you are. <laughs> you know, um, you, you might say, well, I'm setting out to sell my company or I'm setting out to raise this fundraising round. Um, but at least with the, these two events, I felt like it was more like, for example, Google set out to purchase a company in the social media space or with this VC, this particular VC set out to make an investment in the advertising space. And so, you know, I think we were a lot less in control than we thought we were. And, you know, having that perfect pitch and that perfect pitch deck and that perfect strategy and the right answers to all the questions, you know, we thought we had all of those things. But at the end of the day, I think it was just the VC that wanted to invest did and the ones that didn't, didn't. I'm not sure, <laughs> despite all the work we put in, I'm not sure how much of an effect we actually had on, on the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. And so I guess on the outcome of that process, you ended up getting headhunted for a, a few opportunities in the UK. Can you tell us more about, I guess, that experience and what it was like going to work or, or look for to, to, to join a startup in the UK? Yeah, I actually went back to Canada for a while. So I sort of had a, a, a you know, the, the Valley is, is great, but it, it's also very insular and very much a bubble. And I wanted to sort of get back home, be, be close to family and friends again, kind of get out of the Silicon Valley bubble. So I did that. I went back to Canada. And I, I don't quite remember the, the timing, but sometime after that, I, I got headhunted for this this role in the UK. And the interesting thing is actually I didn't end up taking that role. So I got headhunted for this role in the UK at a media company that kind of wanted to be more of a product company. At this point, I had a lot of advertising, marketing, kind of ad tech experience. So sort of a pretty good fit, but I didn't end up joining the company actually. So I, I, uh, I looked around, I thought, okay, this looks like I might actually be going to the UK, but I wanted to talk to some other companies. So I ended up talking to a startup and I, I actually liked them more. <laughs> um, so I sort of never would have gone had I not been headhunted by this other company originally, but I ultimately ended up going to a startup. So I, I only spent a year in the UK and at this particular startup. And so, you know, I think, I think the main value was just now having this really clear view of sort of tech communities and, and product management and entrepreneurship across three different geographies, you know, Silicon Valley, Toronto, Waterloo, and, and the UK. So I think that was probably the, the most interesting thing about it for me. That's amazing. It's so cool to, you know, be in this industry where you're able to go travel the world and just work on stuff that you're extremely passionate about. But yeah, going back to kind of your career path. So today you're, you're the co-founder of Ray.ai. So can you tell us a bit more about what Ray is all about and kind of what motivated you to start it? Yeah. So Ray.ai is about social networking automation is sort of the phrase that we've we've come up with. And the, the basic premise is that, you know, if, if I could sort of erase your memory and, and then and then and then ask you what you thought a social network did, I, I think that you might say something like, oh, it's a way for a way uh, to meet people. Or something like that, um, because that's sort of what social networking sounds like. But if you look at the social networks out there, uh, the vast majority of them tend to reflect people you've already met through some other means. So, you know, for example, maybe you meet someone at a conference and then you add them on LinkedIn, or you meet someone at a party and then you add them on Facebook, something like that. The opposite way around, where social networks help you decide who it is that you should be meeting, there seems to be very little innovation in that space. So, you know, of course, we've got Tinder in the uh, dating space where you really just swipe for hours on end. And there have been a number of companies that have 
attempted that kind of swipe style interface for the you know the professional uh, networking market. But there's sort of been very little innovation there. And so this this process of getting introduced to people, of growing your network, of meeting people that you should meet is an extremely human-driven process today, and it can be driven mostly by by AI. So that, that's the fundamental idea, is going from a social network defined by who you already know to one that's more defined by who you should know, uh, and having that being driven by AI and not by uh, people swiping all day and all night. <laughs> that's really cool. And then what platform is, uh, is Ray currently targeting? You know, there's another angle here, which is just that it's very difficult. You know, a lot of people, when they start a product or a business, they start with the idea that they're going to build an app, mobile app, for example, or they're going to build a website, something like that. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is that just that those markets are massively flooded. I mean, there's a million apps out there and billions of websites and so on and so forth. And probably because they're flooded, it's really difficult to get people to engage with that kind of thing on a regular basis. So, you know, the usage pattern of 99% of the apps on the app store is uh, user downloads the app, user opens the app, user does a few things. Things, user closes the app, user never touches the app again. <laughs> and it's it's really hard to, uh, to break out of that. And there's also this idea that if it's going to be automating the process of networking, then one major goal we have is just to minimize the amount of work the user has to do. So ideally, the user doesn't have to do any work. They just sign up, they provide their information, and then they're done. It's just sort of magically working for you in the cloud. You don't have to worry about it. So that, that's the basic idea. So the primary interface is actually over email. And you know that's how introductions work today with people, right? If I, For example, if I were to introduce the two of you, I might introduce you over email. And so Ray uh, works that way as well. It'll confirm with both people over email. They both say yes, then it'll make the introduction over email. So once you're signed up, you really don't have to worry about it at all. It's sort of thinking about who you should meet in the background. And that, that was sort of a very intentional design decision for us. I love that. It just, you know, just making the connections without really having to think about it, which is, and going back to the platform that most people use to make introductions. So it's really cool to see how you put these pieces together. So you've worked on a, several products over the course of your career. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned and just mistakes you see other startups or product managers making when, when building products? It's an interesting question. I definitely, you know, I, I, I teach product management at, uh, at BrainStation here in Toronto, and I'm always telling my students, start with the product experience where the user snaps their fingers and the value is magically delivered. And if you can't deliver that product experience, add the minimum amount of work necessary to make it to deliver it. So, you know, we did that with Ray, but but I think a lot of people don't start with that premise. They start with a different premise, like, again, let's have an app or a website, and let's add all this kind of user interface to it. And, and I think what we've lost sight of in, in this, in building very beautiful user experiences is that if users could just get rid of the user experience and magically have the value delivered, they would they would opt for that instead in, in most cases. You know, unless the user experience is like, I'm watching a movie, then you actually need a screen or something, something like that. But even the, but that is the value being delivered, right? So I, I do think we, we have sort of overemphasized this idea of user experience and underemphasized value delivery. Uh, because that's what people want. They want their problem solved. It's like, give me the thing. Right. It would be like saying, you know, for example, if McDonald's were really busy, you know, making the user experience better would be like making the waiting line more comfortable or something like that. Uh, but what would be much better is just give you your food. <laughs> and so that philosophy, I, I, I don't see enough of. And, and I think there's probably particularly with the technology and the tools we have available today uh, with things like for example, machine learning, which of course everyone is, is is talking about, you can actually deliver these kinds of more magical experiences where they just work. So I, I think that's definitely something for people to to think about a lot more. That's really great insights. So it's still very early days in terms of Ray, but what has it been like just building out, you know, this new experience? 
it's been it's been interesting a lot of levels it's been interesting technically because you know as as i said i've sort of been a product manager for most of my career so i'm trained in computer engineering but have been doing product management so i'm sort of the chief engineer (laughs) so so it's been sort of relearning a lot of that and and using you know a lot of my skills are my technical skills are maybe five or ten years out of date in terms of the last time i did a really serious uh software development project so that's been interesting and rewarding and i feel like i'm really on top of all of that now i have a uh, sort of deep sense of how neural networks work and how python uh, works and how to deploy to amazon and how to make everything uh, run so that technical part has been really interesting and then learning about the market what users want um and and the surprises therein has also been really interesting and it's, it's actually super rewarding the, the product itself is super rewarding you know for for my co-founder mark and i to to run just because the impact of an intro of a good introduction is so high so you know if you introduce the right two people they might start a business together they might you know they might travel the world together uh, they might uh, come up with some great idea together some great invention together who, who knows and so there have already been some really interesting introductions that Ray has made uh, that w- would not have otherwise happened and, and seem to have uh, a lot of potential. So, so that's been very rewarding. It's interesting to look at who wants to meet who and kind of what the supply and demand uh, situation is. So so yeah, it's it's been fascinating all around. That's amazing. So what has it been like taking the time and actually building the product in Toronto versus Silicon Valley or in the UK? And what is the scene like here? The scene here is maybe closer to the UK than to the valley in the sense that what we've noticed is very conservative investors and very risk tolerant talent so you know we, we've got lots of people who want to work for us uh, for pure equity whereas getting investment dollars we, we do have investment but uh, but it's been much more difficult to get investment dollars and I, I think the situation is maybe a little bit more reversed in the valley where it's a, still difficult to raise but it's a bit easier to get investment dollars and a bit harder to get talent because there's so much competition so that's that's sort of my rough take on it and, and, and it's just it, it's you know it's a, i'm sure you've had other guests tell you this as well but it's, it's a much smaller market up here as well just fewer companies fewer people fewer of everything even though toronto is you know a massive uh, city so just going a bit deeper on that note what's it specifically like building an air product in toronto why canada for this type of industry as a canadian it's, it's pretty uh, it's pretty challenging to build to build a company in the US if you have a lot of funding or if you have some other means of, of sort of doing that you can but it's definitely just easier for me as a Canadian to build here and I, and I would prefer it so for me and I, and I think a lot of others the the trade-off is around do you want to be in the valley which sort of maximizes your career potential or do you want to be sort of close to you do you want to be at home basically do you want to be close to friends and family in a you know in a place that you know a place where you're a citizen so for me, it's just that trade-off. Um, and if I, and the nice thing about building a company in Canada is, that, you know, if it's successful, it enables me to to kind of stay here and not make that trade-off between career and and location. Being around friends and family, you know, is a huge driver just with you know personal happiness, and then tying it back to just what you're passionate about with building Ray. So, what is next for Ray in the upcoming months? So there's two drivers of the sort of value that Ray provides, that value being meeting great people that you really should meet. One driver is how good the AI is at predicting whether two people want to meet. And the other factor is how big the network is. So, you know, the example I always like to give is if the AI is uh, super intelligent, but it's only selecting from among 10 alternatives in terms of people for you to meet, it just, no matter how smart it is, it just can't do a very good job. So we're pretty happy with the technology at this point. We think it's working pretty well. In other words, we think the AI AI is is smart enough, um, but we need to get way, way, way more people on the network. So right now we're approaching around a thousand people on network, which is is a great start. But we want tens or or hundreds of thousands as a starting point. So the AI has, you know, it's 
considering an introduction for you, it has many, many, many alternatives that it's choosing from among. So that's our big push starting in January, is to really get that viral growth engine going. The way we think we're going to unlock that right now is one, to make it actually a closed network. So today it's completely open, anybody can join. Somewhat counterintuitively, we're actually going to make it invite only. So you can sort of apply to join. Uh, we may or may not let you in, uh, but the, for those who are in, we're going to give you invite codes to invite your friends. And the more of your invite codes that you use, the more introductions you get. And so we're hoping that that sort of viral loop will drive a lot of growth in the new year where people are incentivized to bring great people onto the network uh, because Ray will generate more introductions to other people for them when they do that and, and sort of uh, repeating that. So that's, that's our sort of basic growth plan for the new year. That's really cool. Really looking forward to seeing, you know, the, the next step of growth for you guys and, and how the product continues to evolve from there. Yeah, so are we. <laughs> so what are some of the most recent apps or frameworks that you've either looked at for inspiration, used to build Ray, or that you've just downloaded and loved for your personal life? I mean, a sort of weird inspiration indirectly is Google Alerts. <laughs> so, um, and that, that sounds a little bit odd, but Google Alerts follows that same sort of thing, which is you set it up and you say, hey, Google, let me know if you run into any new content on you know this particular topic. And then it's just there working in the background for you. Um, you don't have to log into the Google Alerts app or anything like that. So that's sort of an indirect inspiration. I think just in general, the proliferation of all of these machine learning platforms has, has been inspiring. In fact, when I first started working on this last year, um, I just wanted to try something in the machine learning area. So I just wanted to try something with you know TensorFlow and Python and things like that. It's been amazing how much all of these tools have progressed over the last, you know, five or 10 years. Something like, you know, for example, Python and Flask and Bootstrap, for example, to build web application or to do data processing is just so ridiculously fast compared to the sorts of tools we had, you know, five or 10 years ago. It's it's just amazing how quickly you can spin something up. So so that's that's been sort of uh, really interesting to uh, to see that. So so yeah, that I, I don't know that there's one sort of application that's that's been, if anything, it's anti-pattern. I have too many applications that are asking me to remember too many things and to check on too many notifications. And so there's almost an anti-pattern of, you know, I, I, I don't think anyone is saying, gosh, I wish I had more apps in my home screen, or I wish I had tabs in my browser or anything like that. Um, so it's, that's, that's the sort of inspiration, I think, that's uh, behind it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So along those same lines, are there any other resources like books, blogs, videos, podcasts, whatever that you've come across and would recommend to others? You know, I'm I'm a big fan of of some of the classics, uh, in particular Clayton Christensen, which you know I'm, I'm sure you've you've heard a lot, but I, I do find Clayton Christensen's Innovator Solution to be kind of a bible for me when I when I think about business and product. So I, I definitely go back to that a lot, and it's you know it's not the kind of book that you can sort of just read once and forget about. It is it is a reference, I and mean, it's it's a fantastic way of of thinking about things and and working through problems. I also really like Made to Stick by Chip and Dan. Heath sort of extremely useful. There's a, there's a whole uh, there's a whole bunch, but I those are those are two that uh, that come to mind. Awesome. So we've discussed a ton of different things throughout the course of the episode. Do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you live by, and you think other folks should know about? Yeah, it's something interesting came to came to mind actually. I was just talking to someone about this today, which is I'm not sure that a startup is is a career path, and this is something that that I see a lot. Um, you know, people like a definite series of steps. So, for example, uh, you know, I go to high school, I go to university, I go to, for example, uh, medical school, I do a residency, uh, I become a doctor, I become board certified, and so on and so forth. So they like this sort of guaranteed set of steps with a essentially guaranteed outcome at the end if you do the right set of things. And I've noticed that a lot in the startup world 
where there's this effort to make it a set of steps that you can follow. You know, so something like come up with an idea, uh, build a prototype, raise a seed round, join a co-working space or an accelerator growth hack, something something like that. And I, I'm not convinced that, that that's actually true, that sort of every startup can just follow some set of steps. And, and in fact, I, my sense is that some of the greatest companies didn't follow those steps, that they have unique origin stories. So so I think that's uh, something to, to think about is for the for the people in the tech world. I, I see this a lot in Toronto. I was at a co-working space and an accelerator today. And it's I, uh, I do think it's worth thinking about whether, you know, following those steps will lead you to success in the startup world in the way that it might lead you to success in, in the career world. Absolutely. Something great to, to, to think about, definitely. Tom, thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate having you on. No worries. Thanks a lot, guys. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.